If you have a Bible with you, once you open up, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. When you get there, put your finger there or put your Bible marker, whatever works for you, and then turn over to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 6. And we are not continuing on in the study of the rapture of the church. We spent six weeks on that. So tonight we are back to 1 Samuel. And I got to tell you, I, I shared with our, with our ministry team earlier this morning, I just have been looking forward to this. Uh, I love going through the Bible verse by verse. And it's such a blessing. And while I love days like Easter and, and Good Friday and, and opportunities to pause, and, and as we've done the discussion through the rapture of the church, considering these things, I love to do that. I really enjoy it. And I very much personally, I don't know about you, but I enjoyed spending some time in that and answering questions and thinking through that with you all. But what I love about just being where we are in the Bible is it's not up to any of us to figure out what we're supposed to know or learn for tonight. God does that. You know, it's, it's not, well, it's Easter Sunday, so we need to talk about the resurrection. As I said on Sunday, we talk about the resurrection every time we meet or we're missing something, right? That's the, the heart of our faith. But, you know, to, to have specific topics and themes, I enjoy that, but I, I just love going, okay, Lord, what do you have for us this week? First Samuel chapter two, what do you have for us, Lord? And you'll see, I, I am very, I was very blessed in this study, and I think you'll be blessed tonight in the hearing and as we study this together. But picking up first in Isaiah, book of Isaiah, chapter six, verse 10, Isaiah speaking, Isaiah the prophet, this is, you know, just give you the time frame, about 700, maybe 750 years prior to Christ, prior to the coming of Jesus the first time. Isaiah says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Which, by the way, is always a great answer. When the Lord says, who, who's gonna go? I'll go. How about me? Send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Doesn't that seem like the exact opposite of what you would want to do in evangelism? Go tell them, don't look, don't listen, don't be sensitive to the word, otherwise you might get saved. Otherwise, you might get healed. I read that and I think that's exactly what God did to us as a church when we first began and we went down to Island County and we said, hey, we're meeting in this barn and uh, we just wanna know what, what we can do to make sure we're kind of up to code and that kind of thing. And they looked at where we were and they said, well, you can't be up to code in that barn. You're not supposed to be in a barn based on county regulations, all that, you know. And we said, well, we've, we're already meeting there. What, what do we do? And they said, well, as long as no one complains, <laughs> that didn't take long. As long as no one complains that you're there, just uh, look for land as quickly as possible, but you can't advertise. And I'm like, we're starting a church and we can't advertise. Turns out it was the best evangelism move we have ever seen. Don't advertise. So what we do, well, people just told their friends and, and the Lord grew the church that way. 
And it was such a blessing, but it, it, it comes to mind when I read this. Keep on listening, keep on looking, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, <laughs> they might actually be healed, which obviously is God's intention, that everybody be healed, that the blind see, and that the deaf hear, and that the hard-hearted become softened and actually come to know the Lord and be saved. That's God's intent, right? So it's kind of a Hebrew backdoor reverse psychology approach as he's telling Isaiah, but he's also speaking of the condition of the people. Now I begin here because Jesus grabbed hold of this very same thing and he began teaching in parables and his disciples are like, Lord, why do you do that? Why don't you just tell them? Why are you teaching in parables? Why coming up with a story to lay alongside the truth? Why not just tell them what the truth is? And Jesus' response was to quote Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10. He quoted this. He quoted a prophet. Ironically, Jesus quoted a prophet who was inspired by the spirit of Jesus, according to 1 Peter chapter one, verse 11. You know, the spirit of Christ within him is what inspired Isaiah to write, Isaiah to speak. So it was Jesus quoting, Isaiah quoting Jesus. And that's so cool to me. It's mind boggling, but it's wonderful. All four gospels repeat Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10. This obviously from a New Testament perspective is highly significant, even as it was to the Jewish people back in the Hebrew scriptures. But all four, repeat this, and I put the verses up there so you can see in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, uh, John chapter 12. You can go and see, this is where Jesus is quoting this, or in John's case, John quoted it. But there is one exception I'll point out to you quickly here. In the quoting of this passage, every other one says they would understand with their hearts and return and be healed, which is what Isaiah said. In Mark's gospel, there is a slight Holy Spirit tweak. That is, it's translated, not return and be healed, but Jesus says in Mark, and I believe Jesus said this, perhaps at a different time, or, or Peter heard it, and so it was written down this way. I think Jesus said both, that they might return and be healed, or he says otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Forgiven. Why would he do that? Well, because forgiveness and healing are the same thing. Where God is concerned, the greatest healing that any of our hearts could possibly ever receive is to find forgiveness for our sin. It is forgiveness that softens a hardened heart. It's forgiveness that saves us. It's forgiveness that Jesus declared from the cross, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. So forgiveness is healing, and healing is forgiveness. And by faith, we turn to Jesus for forgiveness, which heals us, and which, by the way, once healed, it yields more faith. So we have even more faith, and faith then begins to shape and develop and finally accomplish our value. Let me say that again, because I, I really had to pray through and process this, this statement. Faith shapes and develops and accomplishes our value, literally our worth as God intended. It is through the process of faithfully, of trusting him that we go from point A to point Z, that we come ultimately to that day where we are completely perfected in Christ Jesus, in the day of Christ Jesus, that day that we talked about the last six weeks. So faith is this process of trusting the Lord that does all of this, and it's so important to understand this ultimately brings out 
the value, the worth of human life that God intended for each one of us. You don't get there without faith. You don't get to the point of true value as a human being. You don't ever fully experience your worth without faith in Jesus. And and that's not to devalue someone else. It's not to say that others are not important or not valuable, other human beings. People are so important that Jesus died for us long before we even had faith. However, to, to grow and to mature in and finally to be accomplished in the worth and value God has ordained for all people, for each one of us, it requires faith. So we have Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. That's a statement of faith. Send me, I'll go. I trust that you have a message for me. I'll take it. Back up 450 years from Isaiah, and we have the boy Samuel, who heard the Lord call his name, and he says the exact same thing as Isaiah. He says, here I am. He says it at a time when the hearts of the people were insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. This is not just something that occurred in the time of Isaiah. No, it occurred in the time of Samuel. We see this in the time of the judges. In fact, we see this on a cyclical pattern really throughout the history of Israel, and we could say in the entire history of the world. We see times where nations have great faith, and then we we see times where nations are just dim and dull and insensitive. But to come to that point of, of knowing our worth, knowing our value, it takes faith. And it's faith that says, here I am. And Samuel answered the call. Samuel would say, we'll say, we'll see tonight, here I am. His life became one of eternal value. Great, obviously great historical value. Great value for the people of Israel at a critical time in Israel's history. But but Samuel stepped into eternal value when he trusted and believed the Lord. But you need to understand as we get into it tonight, something prepared Samuel to hear and to respond as he did. Something happened first in Samuel's life as he began to grow up at the tabernacle. Remember Hannah, his mother, in 1 Samuel chapter one and going into chapter two, brought him, uh, was given him by the Lord, literally, as she was able to give birth when she was previously barren. God gives her this son and she gives him back to the Lord after weaning him. So probably three, four, five, probably five is a good estimate of when she comes back to the tabernacle and drops Samuel off there to be raised at the tabernacle. And so she does that, but there was something then that began to happen in his life. Watch this. First uh, Samuel now. First Samuel chapter two. I need to get there myself. First Samuel chapter two, verse 11 Then Elkanah, that is Samuel's father, went to his home at Ramah. And so the the understanding is, so Hannah went to the family, they brought him, they left him, and they went home. But the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Five years old, maybe four. Could be three, more likely four or five. So let's just, let's just go with five for the purposes of our study and understanding tonight. A five-year-old boy, and we're told in verse 11 that he ministered to the Lord. How many of you were in ministry at the age of five? Just like a show of hands. 
I didn't, I didn't even know what ministry was. In fact, I remember being, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere around there, probably not that old, but I guess around this same age, I remember telling my parents that, that um, I, I, I confused the minister with the sermon. I said, the sermon was really good today. And my mom said, did you learn something? And I said, no, I, I mean the guy. Isn't he the sermon? I didn't know. I didn't know that the minister, the pastor, it was, I thought we called him the sermon. He's the sermon. <laughs> now, there's something profound in that because our lives are kind of a sermon, right? So, I mean, you can say Rick was really on to something or he was a clueless wonder, which is far more likely. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand ministry. What's ministry? But the boy Samuel, the boy ministered to the Lord. Do you know what the word ministered is here in the Hebrew? Served. Served. We have gotten to a point in, in this culture where we hear the word ministry and we think you have to be ordained. No, you don't. Ministry in the New Testament is, is just being a deacon, diakonos. That's just serving. Ministry in the Hebrew scriptures, same thing. The boy served the Lord. That's what the phrase is. That's what the sentence is here. You don't have to be even called to serve. You just do it. Because, you, you know, it's the thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Samuel is now dropped off. He is now under the tutelage and care, interestingly, of this old guy, Ellie. And as we've talked about before, the women who served at the tabernacle, remember Jephthah's daughter? I, I kind of think, you know, she very likely would have been an older lady there at the tabernacle if she was at the tabernacle. That's, that's kind of hearsay or, or, or surmise on my part. Maybe, maybe not, but there were women who served there. So there were women to care for little Samuel and take care of him. But he was learning from the high priest Eli at Shiloh. Would have been a decent time to learn because no one was going to Shiloh in those days anyway. So there would have been plenty of time for him to just kind of train him and teach him and show him what to do. But all little Samuel was doing here as he ministered to the Lord was serve. Which, by the way, ministers to the Lord. See, he was, he was far too young to be an ordained priest at this point. Far too young for that. So that is to say he couldn't minister for Yahweh, but he could minister to Yahweh. And there's a difference. See, even a child can minister to the Lord. A child sitting here in worship on a Sunday morning, singing out of tune at the top of his lungs, ministers to the Lord. Right? A, a child picking up his toys simply because mom asked him to ministers to the Lord. There's something sweet in, in childlike service. And any child can do that. Any believer, anyone who, who even has a sense of the Lord can do that. You don't need a degree. You don't need to be ordained. You don't need anything at all but simply the desire. Do you realize that as we sat here singing tonight or stood here singing tonight, you were ministering to the Lord? When you bow your head in prayer, when you turn to the Lord and speak his name and, and call out to him, you are ministering to the Lord. Ministry to the Lord is, is that simple. If you're taking out the garbage at the church, if you're helping out with something, if you get involved with student ministry or you're teaching a kid's class on a Sunday morning or you're helping set up chairs, you are serving the Lord. You're ministering to the Lord. Now that's different than ministering for the Lord. How is that different? Well, ministering to the Lord is something anyone and everyone can do. Ministering for the Lord indicates a unique calling. A unique calling. So Jeremy is called to student ministry. He's gonna begin, as we've talked about, June 1st. He's gonna come on staff full-time as, as our 
uh, youth director, and he will be ministering to our students. He has a calling. He will be ministering for the Lord because the Lord has called him for that purpose. So there is the role of ministering for the Lord. There's the role of ministering to the Lord. Anyone can minister to the Lord. Again, we do it, as I said, in prayer and worship and service and acts of, of, of fellowship even. When we set our minds on the interests of God over our own self-interests, we're ministering to the Lord. When we're putting him first. But effective ministry for the Lord by calling always grows out of ministry to the Lord by simple service. And that's the thing to see here in little Samuel's life. Right now, five years old or so, he's just doing, Samuel, bring the wood for the, for the altar fire. Okay, and off he goes. He's ministering to the Lord. Samuel, bring the water for, for, the, for the bronze laver. He goes off and gets the water. Samuel, I, I need you to clean the, the shoes of the high priest. Samuel, I need you to do that. Samuel, can you run over and take care of this? And in doing these things, Samuel was simply ministering to the Lord. He was just serving and learning about this whole process of life at the tabernacle. Let me give you more proof of this. In Antioch, Saul and Barnabas and, and a group of, group of guys were gathering together and we're told, Acts chapter 13, verse two, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, what were they doing? They were praying, they were singing, they were a group of prophets, so they were prophesying, they were listening up, they were paying attention, they were ministering to the Lord. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Ministering to the Lord, and they're called to do ministry for the Lord. Ministry to the Lord is always first. It's always clean the toilets before we make you a pastor. You know, it's always start just by doing what you do, do it unto the Lord. And as you do that, as you serve the Lord, as you minister to the Lord, the opportunity to minister for the Lord in some specific calling will follow. I'm convinced of this. Just as the Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Saul into ministry for the Lord as they were ministering to the Lord. I wanna make sure we're real clear on that distinction because ultimately any ministry, whether it's to or for the Lord, is putting God's will ahead of self-will. and saying, I wanna do what pleases him, which is why I can say to you tonight that as you worshiped, you were ministering to the Lord because it pleases him. You're bringing joy to his heart. We forget that because we come in here, the music starts, and we start to, we start to settle, out, settle out the day, and we start to get into a mindset, and we, and we start to enjoy the Lord ourselves. And, there, and there's so much of it for us and our experience of worship, and yet you are bringing pleasure to the Lord. You can go home tonight and say, I ministered to the Lord tonight because that's exactly what you've been doing. Samuel spends the first part, of, spends his boyhood, really, ministering to the Lord. And what we're gonna see before we ever get to his calling and ultimately his ministry for the Lord as God's prophet, greatest prophet since Moses. But before he gets there, there's a, a boyhood of ministry to the Lord in simple service. And there's a distinct and recurring contrast that we see through chapters two and three. I wanna go ahead and give it to you right now. You can follow this through as an outline. I'm not really gonna outline it later, but I want you to see this 
Before we get any further, in verse 11 of chapter two, we see Samuel serves the Lord, okay? He ministers to the Lord. Verses 12 through 17 of chapter two, we're gonna see Hophni and Phinehas, who are priests and are supposed to be serving the Lord, right? What we're gonna see is they're gonna serve themselves meat. So we start with Samuel serving the Lord, and then we see Hophni and Phinehas serving themselves meat. And then the Holy Spirit, as he lays this out before us, goes right back to Samuel in chapter two, verses 18 through 21, where we see Samuel serving and growing before the Lord. And then in verse 22, I'll go back over this if you miss any of these, but in the verse 22 through 25, Hophni and Phinehas again are now serving themselves women. Then we come to verse 26 of chapter two. Samuel, growing in stature and favor before the Lord and before man. Then we come to chapter two, verse 27 through 36, the rest of that chapter, we see Hophni and Phinehas again, but they are being prophetically judged. And then finally in chapter three, verse one, we find Samuel still serving the Lord. And this back and forth becomes very stunning. In fact, in my Bible, I just highlighted the times where Samuel is serving the Lord. And you see Samuel serve, and you see Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel serves the Lord, Hophni and Phinehas serves themselves. Samuel serves the Lord, Hophni and Phinehas serves themselves. Samuel serves the Lord and grows before the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas are judged for their immoral behavior. And then we're right back and we find Samuel again serving the Lord. So again, verse 11, Samuel serves the Lord. Verse 12 through 17, Hophni and Phinehas serve themselves. Verses 18 through 21, Samuel serves and grows before the Lord. Verse 22 through 25, Hophni and Phinehas serve themselves again. Verse 26, Samuel grows in stature and favor before the Lord and before man. Verses 27 through 36, Hophni and Phinehas are judged And chapter three, verse one, Samuel is still serving the Lord. Understand that through this entire time, even through this back and forth, Samuel is doing ministry to the Lord. Now that becomes very critical in just a few minutes here and you'll see why. But ultimately he will minister for the Lord as we'll see in chapter three. All right, picking up in verse 12. So we have the boy ministering to the Lord, probably five years old at this point, keep that in mind. Verse 12, now, The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. Stop right there. These two guys, and they are Eli's sons, so they're in, not only are they Levites, they're Aaronic priests, they're, they're Aaronite priests, So they're of the line of Aaron, they're in the direct line to be the next high priest. One of the two of them, Hophni or Phinehas, would be the next one following Eli after the death of Eli. That's the way it was lined up for it to go. And these two guys are horrible. I mean, I've joked around before and called them morons and idiots and and that doesn't even come close to what these guys are doing. What we're told here in verses 12 and the beginning of 13, these worthless men did not know the Lord and they had no concern for his people. They didn't know the Lord and they didn't know the custom of the priests with the people. In other words, they were not treating the people well. And oftentimes you see these two things go hand in hand. The one always affects the other. As I know the Lord, it will affect. It has to affect how I treat people. 
And as I love people, I find myself loving the Lord all the more. It is a symbiotic process. But these sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are bad dudes. And they're bad on both counts. Let me give you a couple of definitions here. Hophni, his name means fisticuffs. I kid you not, uh, it's fist fighter. That's what Hophni means in the Hebrew. Fist fighter or, or boxer. Boxer, one who, who fights even professionally. In fact, the name Hophni can indicate what they would call, uh, what's the word, a pugilist, which is a professional fighter. Hophni's name means fisticuffs. Let's just call him that. Phineas, or literally penachas, penachas, means mouth of Nahas, or mouth of a serpent, which is very interesting. I don't know why they got named these names. I don't know what Ellie and Mrs. Ellie were thinking when they named their sons Fisticuffs and mouth of a serpent. But the Bible tells us, besides their names, that these two guys were, verse 12, worthless men. We've seen the phrase before. It's Bene Belial. Bene Belial, sons of Belial. As Paul writes in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 15, what harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And Belial being a name of Satan, a name of worthlessness. That's part of why I said earlier, faith develops and brings full maturity to our value, our worth. A lack of faith brings worthlessness. And, and the devil himself being, well, son of perdition, son of waste, son of no value. Faith shapes, develops, accomplishes value. Faithlessness produces worthlessness. And yes, that's a value judgment of unbelief. And I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger at non-believers and I'm not calling them, you know, bad or, or, or worse or anything else. What I'm saying is it's a value judgment of unbelief because who or what we believe develops and produces how we live. Whatever I believe or whoever I believe has immediate impact on how I live my life and the value of my life. These guys are worthless men. So before we even see what they do, we, are under, we understand, we are told they are worthless. Continuing on. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. Why? What does the boiling have to do? The boiling causes the fat to fall off. Do you remember in the sacrifices what part of the, of the meat God said was his? It was all the fatty portions. Now, we understand at this point in, in history and in, and in understanding food, we understand the fat's bad for us. So what God was really doing was saying, give me the fat, give me the kidneys, give me all the things that you know, would actually do you harm. Give that to me, and then you have the lean meat afterward. But what they were doing is before that fat would boil off, they were going and getting it, and they were saying, give it to us now. Why? Because it was tasty. You know, a good marbled uh, prime rib, a little, little fat in there. Man, that's, I, I know it's bad for you. 
I know it, I understand that, but how many of you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and take the skin off? What's wrong with you? <laughs> of course not, I want the extra crispy, you know, fried, crunchy, that's the good stuff. And if I get a steak and there's no fat on it, I'm a little disappointed. Bring me some taste. So they were going in there and saying, give us the meat, give it, before, give it to us for roasting, he will not take the boiled meat. So the priest, you know, in his, in his priestly position is demanding this of the people, Verse 16 says, if the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, which by the way was Torah law, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. Well, now this sounds like a mafia shakedown. I mean, they're, they're now getting threatening with this. And thus, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Let me put a little more meat on this. <laughs> Hophni and Phinehas didn't des despise the meat. They despised the offering. That is to say, the waste in their eyes, the waste of burning good steak on the altar to God? No, 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 no. No, that's, that's a waste in their eyes. Seeing things through their own flesh you know, you understand that the Lord provided for his priests. He provided plenty. In fact, he provided meat from the sacrificial offering after it was first offered to God. You give it to the Lord and then this portion becomes what is then given to the priests. But fisticuffs and snake mouth are sending their lackeys out to jab, you know, jab barbecue forks into the worshiper's crock pots to pull out whatever they could, kind of a game they were playing, before it's even ready for sacrifice. They're stealing the meat, they're interrupting the people's worship. And you know what, this was especially egregious because it was the peace offering. They were interrupting the peace offering, the one offering that was a special offering between the worshiper and the Lord to be a fellowship between the worshiper and the Lord. It was about the worshiper coming to the Lord and these two immoral priests, irreligious guys, are stealing it and ruining it and all the people knew it. Leviticus chapter seven, verse 28, just listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast, and then the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall offer up the fat and smoke on the altar. But the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. You shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. So it's already set up for them to receive some meat. But apparently Hophni and Phinehas didn't like the thigh. They wanted to get the better stuff. They wanted the prime cuts. The Lord says, you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat and the right thigh, that shall be as, as his portion. For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution from the sons of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. I've given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as their due forever from the sons of Israel. Are you ever so upset with what God's giving you that you want something else? That his gift is not enough. 
that maybe you figured out there's a way to get more that's better for me based on my understanding rather than based on the Lord's understanding. The peace offering was that offering that signifies sweet fellowship, but instead of offering, instead of serving God and his people, Hophni and Phinehas, these steak and potatoes men, are helping themselves to whatever beef, mutton, or lamb they could get their own meat hooks into. And they are completely blowing away God's prescription for holy worship and relationship between God and his people. And this is, this is hunger leading to heresy. Because what they are doing, Hophni and Phinehas, would be heretical. It's hunger to heresy. But again, by contrast, verse 18, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And this is so cute. Little five, six, seven-year-old Samuel wearing a little priestly ephod. He looks like a little priest, you know? And, and it wasn't the priestly ephod, but this was one actually, verse 19 says, his mother would make him a little robe, and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. You know, some kids dress like Spider-Man. Samuel was dressing like a little priest. Then Ellie would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. That is five more kids. Five is the number of grace. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Such a beautiful conclusion to the story of, of Hannah. She asked God to grace her with a son that she could give back to God. He did, so she did. He answered her prayer, so she responded in faithfulness, and now he graces her with five more kids, three sons, two daughters. And it's just as John wrote in John 1:16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Not only does she receive Samuel in crying out her prayers to the Lord, a son that she could dedicate completely to the Lord. She receives Samuel, she dedicates him to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm giving you more kids. And she ends up with five. By the way, uh, skip all the way down to verse 21, or, or look again, sorry, look again at 21. At the end of the verse, it says, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. The boy Samuel grew before the Lord. It's an interesting verse. There's gonna be another one that comes up in a moment, but there's a parallel here already to another boy who grew up before the Lord. Luke chapter two, verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Uh, before that, Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, verse two, he grew up from before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Little Samuel is growing up like a root out of parched ground. Now, that, the prophecy was Isaiah, so 400 years later, the prophecy Isaiah spoke was obviously of Jesus Christ. But what's so interesting to me is little Samuel is growing up before the Lord at a time of dry depravity in Israel and in the priesthood there. Bad things are going on. Immorality, as you'll see in a moment, and heresy are taking place there at Shiloh, at the tabernacle, and, and among the people of Israel, there is a lostness, there is a dryness, and yet, up from the ground springs a little shoot. 
You know, Samuel is growing up in spite of all this in a dry place. Samuel's growing up just as Jesus was born in the first century at a time of spiritually parched faith and religion in the, in the Middle East at the time and, and in the world. But you might ask a question at this point, because already, okay, we have a sense of the sin of Ellie's sons, and we'll see even more of their sin, but little Samuel is growing up in this. You know, I said back when, when Hannah dedicated Samuel and devoted him to the Lord and brought him to the tabernacle, I said, perhaps part of the reason why is because her husband, Elkanah, was a lapsed priest. How do we know Elkanah is a lapsed priest? Well, as a Levite, he's not living in one of the Levitical cities. So perhaps God in his wisdom said, you know, I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna bless Hannah with a boy who will be raised at the tabernacle, raised closer to me, closer to my presence and not in the home of a lapsed priest. And yet now we see Samuel being raised at Shiloh and there's Hophni and Phinehas. I would far prefer Elkanah, a lapsed priest, but at least a good guy who goes to Christmas and Easter services as opposed to Hophni and Phinehas who are playing the role of priest and they are doing it sinfully. How did he grow spiritually before the Lord with two depraved losers as examples? Well, how do you? I'm not calling myself a depraved loser. Wait, let me, let me be clear here. If you've ever been disappointed by the actions of Christians, if you've ever been hurt by church, and, and that phrase, by the way, it, it always kills me when someone says, well, the church has hurt me. No, the church has not hurt you. A person did. Someone who claimed to be a Christian may have, or a, a, a gathering of Christians in a church may have done something that hurt you. The church, you're the church. I'm the church. The church is simply God's people. The church doesn't hurt you, but a Christian may very well have, and if you've ever been disappointed or hurt by the actions of another Christian, Listen, here is the key to not getting discouraged in your faith. This is important. Grow before the Lord. Grow before the Lord. This is what we see of the boy Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas are there. These guys are complete spiritual losers. They are not good examples, and yet Samuel grew before the Lord. He continues to grow before the Lord. We're gonna see him grow in wisdom and stature before the Lord and in favor with the Lord and, and with men because he's growing before the Lord. I don't know if this is Ellie's influence on him. I don't know if it's some of the women who served at the doorway of the tabernacle. I don't know how, but somehow little Samuel is growing up and his eyes are on the Lord and on the things of the Lord, not on Hophni and Phinehas and their horrific example. Grow before the Lord. I love what Paul wrote, Galatians 1.10. I have this on a little plaque in my office. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That is absolutely key for maintaining and being in a church fellowship, being hurt by other believers. And by the way, stick around long enough in any church and you will be hurt by one of the believers there. It's gonna happen. Why? Because we're still sinners. Saved, forgiven, but we still have that sin nature going on. We will eventually hurt one another one way or another. I'm not excusing it, I'm not saying it's okay, but it's gonna happen if it hasn't. Most of you could say, yeah, no. 
I have been hurt by a brother. I have been hurt by a sister. I have had someone say or do or, or act in such a way that, that it just, it really offended me to the point that I had to leave that fellowship and come to this one. Anytime I hear from someone when they come to the bridge, well, I'm here because of my last church, blah, 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 blah. I can tell you, blah, 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 blah is why they're gonna leave this church. You can't base it on other people. Doesn't, again, it doesn't excuse bad behavior in the church. But we grow before the Lord. That is the only way I've figured out in, you know, 35 plus years of ministry, that's the only way I've figured out how to keep loving people. I gotta keep my eyes on Jesus. By the way, when my eyes are on Jesus, it also makes me far more repentant and willing to go to my brothers and sisters when I have hurt them and say, I'm really sorry about that. that that's on me. Anyway, we grow before the Lord. Now, in contrast to a mother's joy in verses 18 through 21, verse 22, we have to turn now to a father's sorrow. Now, Ellie was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now, just pause there for a moment. Ellie didn't necessarily witness this. He heard it. What does that mean? That means it's all over Israel. That means everybody knows what Hophni and Phinehas are doing. Think about that, moms and dads, parents, especially of adult children, when word comes back around you from other people of something that a son or daughter has done and you go, what am I supposed to do, you know? By the way, let me give you, parents of younger kids, a little hint, parenting adult children, way harder, way harder. And I love my adult children. Okay, wow, Pastor Rick's house must be a complete train wreck. No, no, it's not. It's good. I love my kids, all my kids, but it's more of a challenge because you don't have the input or control that you had when they were younger. They can do whatever they want to do, and you're like... So word has come around here, back to Ellie, that his sons, the priests in training, who one of whom will be high priest someday, are sleeping around with the women who serve at the doorway of the tabernacle. This is unbelievable. And he said to them, so he confronts them, well done, Dad. Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. This is all over the place, boys. Ellie says, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him, true enough. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Oh, I'll tell you who. His name is Jesus. Jesus alone can mediate between us and the Lord because we recognize that all sin is sin against the Lord. This is, this is a horrible situation. These boys have now gone from selfish gluttony, bad enough with the meat offered up. Now selfish gluttony has become sexual immorality. And they're lying with these women. And you know what? Sin always, always, always trends from bad to worse. That's the direction of sin. It never gets a little better. Sin always wants to go one step further always wants to be a little worse than it was before. And two possibilities here, by the way, of them laying with these women, both are bad. One is that they were literally taking advantage of these women who came to serve at the tabernacle 
forcing themselves upon these women, which is horrible because the whole reason these women are showing up to serve at the tabernacle is they love the Lord. But these guys are using their high priestly or their priestly position to misuse and abuse these women. Now that's bad enough. Some have even suggested the possibility that they were setting up temple prostitution at the tabernacle at Shiloh like the, like the uh, Canaanites, like the temple prostitutes the Canaanites. That this is what they had in mind and this is what they were starting to do and, and beginning to make happen. I don't know if it went that far, but we can say very clearly that Hophni and Phinehas were turning the house of the Lord into a house of prostitution. They were turning the tabernacle into a brothel. Matthew chapter seven, verse 16, Jesus said, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And Jesus concludes saying, so then you will know them by their fruits. We know, as we've already been told, these are worthless men because of their selfish desire for the meat and because of their sexual immorality against these women and against the Lord at the tabernacle. And so Eli is getting on to them and he's talking them down. He's saying, this is not okay. If a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him, verse 25? But they would not listen to the voice of their father for the Lord had desired, or for the Lord desired to put them to death. Stop right there. Again, let me say that this is why we need the intercession of Christ at the cross, because in reality, all sin is sin against the Lord. Now, this is the one area where, where Ellie is a little confused. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him, and that's true. But, he says, if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And here's where Ellie is slightly off. If one man sins against another, that sin is against the Lord. Sin is sin against the Lord, period. I can say, well, I didn't sin against God. I just sinned against my wife. That's sin against the Lord. Well, I just sinned against my brother. That's sin against the Lord. Leviticus chapter six, verse two, says when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, and listen to this, and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted or through robbery or he has extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any of the things a man may do. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought he said when a person sins against the Lord. But then he goes on to describe sins against other people. That's because sin against others is sin against the Lord. You can't separate those two out. David said it so clearly, Psalm 51, verse four, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Guess what? David's sin was against Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. David's sin was against Bathsheba. David's sin was against the people of Israel and acting unfaithfully in adultery. David's sin was in covering it up. But for all of that, David realized the big point, and that is that all sin is sin against him. It doesn't matter 
who on earth I've sinned against. It is sin against the Lord. So in that way, Ellie is a little confused that there's sin this way and sin this way. No, all sin is sin against God. But this is interesting. It says, again, at the end of verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father for the Lord desired to put them to death. Let that sit for a moment. They wouldn't listen for the Lord desired. Doesn't say they would not listen to their father, therefore the Lord wanted to punish them for it. It says they would not listen for, they would not listen because Yahweh desired to put them to death. In other words, God made them hard of hearing. God wouldn't let them listen to the voice of their father. God intervened because God had determined it was time that Hophni and Phinehas die. That bother anybody? <laughs> like I said, let it sit for a minute. Well, that's not fair. That's not fair. The warning comes and God won't let them hear the warning because God's already decided to punish them. Come on, that's, that's not fair. It's exactly like God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Same thing. So this is not new in the actions of God in the Bible. But note this, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Exodus chapter seven through nine. Read through it sometime when you have a chance. Exodus seven, eight, and nine. You see God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But, but, after Pharaoh hardened his own heart six times, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Remember what we read as we started? Isaiah chapter six, verse 10. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed, or as Jesus said, and be forgiven. You know, you understand that forgiveness is God's desire for all of us. Forgiveness, that is the end game of the Lord. That's why Jesus died. He wants to forgive. So how is it that he would cause Hophni and Phinehas not to be able to hear. I'm gonna let Davis explain this to you. He says it so well. Hophni's and Phinehas's resistance was not the rationale for Yahweh's judgment, but the result of his judgment. It's a perfectly just judgment, but the text teaches that someone can remain so firm in his rebellion that God will confirm him in it. And that's what's happening. When a heart has become so hard that it is unrepentant, I call it beyond the point of, of no repentance. They have gone beyond the point of no repentance. These two guys are so hardened against God. They don't know the Lord. They don't know what they're doing to his people. All they care for is themselves. And God, who reads hearts perfectly and knows what we can't know or see, knows that these two guys are done. They are so far gone, they will not repent even if they had heard their father. So what does the Lord do? He confirms their firm rebellion. You wanna be rebellious against me? All right, then I will confirm that. And that's what's taking place here. I'm not saying that's easy to hear, but that's what's going on. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Again, the contrast is stunning the back and the forth here. Back to Samuel, and this looks really good. By the way, who are we talking about? The boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Man, that sounds like another son. Again, Luke 2.52, Jesus kept 
increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. There's a parallel here. Samuel is really a picture and type of, of the Messiah who would come, giving us glimpses of what it would be like with Jesus. And so again, we go back and forth between a child growing up before the Lord, a child who is ministering to the Lord, and these two sons of sin, these two worthless men, until finally God levels judgment. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli. By the way, no name. We don't know who this is. We have no idea. He's anonymous. I like that. This is someone who this is a man of God. I don't know if this is a friend of Eli's. I don't know if this is a counselor of his, someone he knows, probably. But we never find out who this is. But he comes to Eli and he says to him, thus says the Lord, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt? in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel? He's talking about Levi and the Levites, the Levitical tribe and, and the Aaronite priesthood. Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give the house of your father all the fiery offerings, fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you, he's talking to Ellie, the message is to Ellie, dad of these two sinful boys, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Hold on here, note this, Ellie is complicit. This is not just a problem of Hophni and Phinehas. This is an Ellie problem. This is a high priest issue, and he is complicit in two ways. Number one, number one, and parents listen to this, and this is, this is convicting for me. Number one, he is complicit by spiritual passivity. Spiritual passivity. Ellie scolded his sons, we see that, but then what'd he do? Nothing. Why didn't he remove them as high priests when he knew what was going on? The moment he discovered that his sons were sleeping with women who were supposed to be there to serve at the tabernacle, why did he not just remove them right there rather than send them to another parish? <laughs> I'll tell you what, it is grounds for immediate removal from serving in a ministry. I, I've told our staff, there, there are two things that would, that would get you fired here. Very few other things could possibly ever come close. Two things will get you fired. Number one, immorality. Unrepentant. Now, if, if there's an immorality that comes up, we discover, and, and you know, I mean, I will work with anyone who's repentant, although depending on the immorality, if, especially if there's a sexual immorality that takes place, you're gonna have to be removed from staff because you can't continue to serve. Immorality and heresy. Those are the two issues. You show up and you start teaching things that are not biblical, teaching something that is not the truth of the scriptures, that, that's grounds for firing. Anything else I can work with, any other problems, any other issues, hey, we'll, we'll deal with. I mean, Jake is still on staff. <laughs> you know why you're on staff, right? Okay, good. You let me know afterwards? Why? <laughs> I love Jake. I, when I, I, I just, you're the only, only reason I rip on him, and I'm gonna get in trouble when I get home from Cheryl, I promise you. I will. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna walk in the house, she's gonna go, you're so mean to Jake! I hear it all the time. I love Jake. Jake is on staff. I'll tell you why he's on staff, because God called him, first and foremost. 
Why is he still on staff? Because I love this guy, and I do, deeply. So, all kidding aside, immorality and heresy. And that's exactly what's in play here. These guys should have been removed. Father gets on them, but he is spiritually passive in that he does nothing. In fact, God goes so far as to say, you honored your sons above me. We ever do that? Romans 1.32. Although they know the ordinance of God, talking about Christians in general, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. When we take a stand verbally, but don't act in any other way, we are giving tacit approval. Ellie is giving tacit approval to his son's behavior because all he does is say, you shouldn't do this, and he walks away and lets him do it. So he is spiritually complicit and then he is spiritually passive and spiritual passivity towards sin is no different than giving hearty approval to sin. The end result is the same, the sin continues. Second thing that he's doing here is carnal conspiracy. Spiritual passivity and carnal conspiracy. Note what God says. You honor your sons above me, verse 29, by making yourselves yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Guess what? Hophni and Phinehas aren't the only ones enjoying steak. Ellie is. Can't believe you guys did this again. Pass a little more over, will you? You, you, you got the, well, that's some good looking meat. You shouldn't have done that. Give me another slice. Yourselves, Ellie included, Ellie got fat on the same meat his, his sons are stealing from the offerings. He's sitting at the same table, according to the judgment of God, who has seen this taking place. And by the way, we'll see this in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 18. Ellie, when he learns of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, when he learns of their death, it's prophesied in this chapter. It tells us that he falls off his stool and he breaks in his neck and he dies because he is, 1 Samuel 4, 18, old and heavy. How did Eli get so heavy? Steak. He's eating the same meat. Ezekiel chapter 34. In fact, why don't you turn over there just for a moment. This is important to see. Ezekiel chapter 34. So just past Isaiah where we began, the prophet Ezekiel. When Jeremiah was prophesying before and up to the fall of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Ezekiel was prophesying from Babylon in captivity. Listen to what he says, what the Lord says through him. Ezekiel 34, verse one, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? By the way, to any of my fellow shepherds, let this be convicting to us. Ye eat the fat and clothe yourselves. And I'm not saying we do this. I'm just saying let's, let's never do this. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. 
And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God. Surely my flock has become a prey. My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for the lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God says, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day that he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. By the way, that's the day of the Lord. But there's a picture here of the good shepherd, of Jesus who came to seek and to save, first, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then secondly, the lost of this world. Jesus, the good shepherd. Anyone who stands in a position of shepherding God's flock must do so with absolute soberness and understand the flock needs feeding, not the fat shepherds. And so even here, five centuries before Ezekiel prophesied that, we see bad shepherding in Israel. This would be a pattern throughout the history of Israel. And as I said earlier, throughout the history of the church, we have seen examples of bad shepherding. And it is always when the shepherds are more intent on feeding their own lust, desires, heresy, and immorality than they are in caring for the sheep who have been entrusted to them. And it is incredibly serious. This is where, where Paul said, those who teach are gonna be judged more harshly. If you're gonna put yourself in that position, it's gonna be more serious for you. This prophetic promise of a good shepherd, and yet we see this bad shepherding, and this is just typical of mankind. Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter two, picking up in verse 30, the railing continues from this man of God, this prophet. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house you will see the distress of my dwelling. By the way, that's prophetic of 1 Samuel chapter four. You will, not, you will see the distress of my dwelling. What's gonna happen? The, the ark is gonna be taken. And there's gonna be a disaster. The glory will depart the tabernacle, as it were. That's the next chapter of chapter four. You'll see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I will do for Israel. By the way, they saw the distress of the dwelling, the tabernacle. They saw the distress of the first temple, his dwelling. They saw the distress of the second temple, his dwelling. All three under great distress and the first two temples destroyed completely. Yet, uh, this will be assigned to you, verse 34. 
Or where, where was it? Verse 33, I will, not, I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day, both of them will die. Because, see, Ellie did nothing. Spiritually passive, he did nothing. He just let him continue. God says, then I'm gonna do something. And you're gonna know everything I'm telling you is true and will come to pass because on the same day, Hophni and Phinehas are going to die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, verse 35, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always, my anointed, second time now we see Mashiach. Direct reference to the Messiah. I'm gonna raise up a priest who will walk before my Messiah always. Who is that priest? Well, this priest is gonna walk before my anointed. Jesus is the anointed. So who's the priest? Let's think about this. John the Baptist, that's an interesting thought. I didn't even think about that, but I don't think so. The priest, some say, is Samuel. That this is a promise. I'm gonna raise up Samuel before you. And some believe that, that, yeah, Samuel is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, the problem with that is that Samuel doesn't function as a priest. He functions as a prophet, Now, he has the right to function as a priest, as we'll see, he can offer sacrifice. He is of the tribe of Levi. He does have a priestly calling, but he functions as Israel's prophet, not their priest. He doesn't work and live and and do the sacrifices constantly at the tabernacle. No, he makes his way around from city to city in Israel, prophesying and serving the people that way. So he's a prophet. So I don't think it's Samuel. Others say, and this is interesting, it's a prophecy of Zadok. Zadok, the high priest. This is the priest who who rose up at the time of David and then was confirmed during Solomon's reign. In fact, 1 Kings 2, verse 27, tells us that Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And then 1 Kings 2, verse 35, and the king, that is Solomon, appointed Zadok, the priest in the place of Abiathar. And from that point forward, the Zadokian priesthood became the standard in Israel. Now, that's still an Aaronite line. It still goes back to Aaron, just like Eli and his line went back to Aaron, but Eli's line failed. And so it was passed along over to the line of Zadok and went forward. And what's really interesting about that is that the family of Zadok had a reputation for faithfulness. In fact, through the Hebrew scriptures and through the history of Israel, the Zadokian priesthood was so faithful that while the Levites are going to lose their priestly position in the millennial kingdom, and you can read about this in Ezekiel 48, the Zadokian priesthood will remain. So the priests of the lineage of Zadok, Zadok, will continue on into the coming millennial kingdom. They have the honor and the blessing of priestly position then because they were faithful before. So you read that and you go, okay, well then there it is. The priestly line of Zadok and Zadok would then be before my Mashiach in the kingdom. They're gonna actually serve. That makes sense. So maybe Samuel, possibly Zadok. But both 
as we have already seen in young Samuel, are types of our greater high priest, which is, you're absolutely right, Doug. I do think it's Mashiach, that this high priest who would be raised up, this priestly person is Jesus, the Messiah. I believe that's, he's the one the prophecy indicates. Zechariah chapter six, verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne, priest and king, first one. And the council of peace will be between the two offices because Jesus is the only one who can handle religion and politics, right? He's the only one who can be a priest and a king and handle it perfectly. The Hebrew pastor says in Hebrews 4.14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Back to my question for Doug. Doug said, well, it's Jesus, of course. And that's the right answer. In fact, most of the time, if you're not sure what the answer is, just say Jesus, you'll probably be right. But how can Jesus be the Mashiach, the anointed, and walk before my anointed? As is prophesied here. He will walk before my anointed. Hmm? She says Melchizedek. Here's the deal. Simply speaking, in the Hebrew language, before also translates in the face of in the face of. That is, he will be high priest in the face of my Mashiach. When we look in the face of Jesus, we will see our high priest. So I do believe it's the Melchizedekian priesthood. If you don't know what is that, that is, wow, um, read Hebrews 7. That's all we have time for on that. Well, rounding out the sordid mess of, of Eli and his sacrificially irreligious and sexually immoral sons, we come back to Samuel in chapter three. Now just stay with me, gotta see this. Samuel at the beginning of chapter three is now probably, by best estimate, 15 to 17 years old. In other words, he has been doing ministry to the Lord for a good decade or more, just serving the Lord. That's important to note. Verse one of chapter three. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. Still ministering to the Lord, same thing. He's just serving, he's just serving. And the word, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. In other words, or literally no vision spread abroad. The word of the Lord was infrequent or rare in those days. You could say things were mighty quiet. No one's hearing from God. John Knox said, a message from God was a rare treasure. I like that translation, or at least that, that concept. A message from God was a rare treasure. Why wasn't God speaking much? Why suddenly is a message from the Lord so rare? I would suggest to you because few, if any, were listening. Why give a message when no one's paying attention? Why speak when no one wants to hear? Why waste your breath. You think the, Lord, the word of the Lord is rare in our country today? Uh, he's still speaking. He's still trying to get a message through. He's still trying to get our attention. But I'll tell you what, it's rare. And it's rare because people aren't listening. Verse two. It happened at that time as Ellie was lying down in his place. 
Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Note this phrase. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Why does it say that? Well, technically, literally speaking, the lamps, seven lamps on the lampstand were the duty of the priests. It was their job to keep those seven lamps burning perpetually through the entire history of Israel. Those lamps, once lit, needed to remain burning. What they would do is they would come in in the morning hours and they would replace the oil in one lamp at a time so that the lampstand itself always remained lit, but they would take one lamp, and if you can imagine that seven-candled lampstand, that golden lampstand, but on the top of each one of those branches, seven of them going up, two on the outside, two here, two here, and then the one right up the middle shaft. On the top of each one of those branches was an actual oil lamp. So the oil lamp filled with oil and then had a wick coming off of it and those were lit. So you had seven lamps on the lampstand or the, the Jewish menorah and that was to be kept burning perpetually. Exodus 27 verse 20 tells us, never go out. So in the morning they would come in and they would trim the wicks and they would add the oil where they needed to and it was one lamp at a time to maintain the lampstand so the lampstand itself never went out. So to say this in the passage, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, tells us when it is, it's, it's nighttime. It's not time to, to, to relight or, or to give more oil to the lamps. And, and note this, we just learned this, Eli himself, the high priest is old, he's almost totally blind. He can't see. So he can't even really see, especially in the dark of night, he can't really see to, to be checking and making sure and keeping an eye on the lampstand it's likely, check this out, it is likely that Samuel is sleeping in the holy place. That that's where he had a cot or a bed on the ground, on the floor, in the holy place. Now, he was of Levi. He wasn't in the holy of holies. He couldn't go in there. Only the high priest once a year, right? For Yom Kippur. I suggest to you he was in the holy place so that he could sleep and during the night he would be able to keep an eye on the lampstand because Ellie could no longer even see. Couldn't even check to make sure everything was okay. So you have this 15, 16, 17-year-old Samuel lying there. This is where he is to keep watch on the lampstand and to be sure that the lamps keep lit until morning when they can be trimmed and the oil put in. But there is a profound picture here at the same time that that's a literal interpretation that the lamp of God, the menorah, was burning so it's night and it hadn't been changed out or gone out. The interesting picture is the light of the nation was growing dim. It was very nearly out, but it wasn't out. This is so encouraging for me when I live in a nation where I see the lamp growing dim. You know what, brothers and sisters, the lamp is not out. The lamp is still burning. The picture here is wonderful. Their ears were dull, their eyes were dim, their hearts were insensitive. That's why the word of the Lord was so rare at that time. And the word of the Lord truly has become rare in the pulpits and in the homes of America today. And the lamp can sometimes feel awfully dim, but it is not out. It has not gone out. As long 
as someone is listening, as long as someone, even just one Samuel, is keeping eyes to the Lord, the lamp is still burning. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As long as someone is in the word, is reading the word, is sharing the word, the lamp has not gone out. First John 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The lamp has not gone out. And even in Israel at this time, though it was looking bad with Hophni and Phinehas and Eli having no control and the word is all over Israel, how bad things are at Shiloh, the lamp, the lamp was still burning. It had not gone out. It was here at this dim time in Israel's history that God calls. The Lord called Samuel, verse four, and he said, here I am. And then he ran to Eli. And he said, here I am. You called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Lord called yet again, second time. Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not, note this, did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. That is telling. 15, 16, 17 years old, he didn't know the Lord. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, but he's been ministering to the Lord for a decade. If he's been ministering to the Lord, how could he not know the Lord? Understand this. He knew of the Lord. He had been serving the Lord, but he did not yet know him personally. He had not yet had an encounter. We might even say a God encounter by experience with the Lord. In other words, that is to say nothing like what's about to happen had ever happened to Samuel before. I remember that. I remember growing up this way. I knew of the Lord. I knew about church, I knew about communion, I knew about baptism, I knew about the Bible, I knew about the sermon. He was a nice looking guy. I knew of the Lord. I didn't know the Lord. I didn't realize until I was older that you could know the Lord personally. That was revelational to me. I was a kid, but it was, revel it was whoa, mind blowing up until that point in my life. I knew, the, I knew of the Lord. I believed in the Lord. I'd even given him my life, but I didn't, I didn't know him. And here's Samuel, he, he didn't know him. But watch this, notice he doesn't see God, he hears him. Samuel, here I am, Ellie. No, 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 go back to bed. Samuel, here I am, Ellie, no, go back to bed. Samuel, and then Samuel, I believe himself writing this says, he didn't know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him, it's about to be, and verse eight, so the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if it shall be, if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Clearly the lamp 
was not yet out. Even Ellie, for the mess that he had made of his family life and of his sons and even his own imbibing in their sin, even Ellie still had discernment. He recognizes, oh, I know what this is. Samuel, go back to bed. If he calls again, this is what you say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, verse 10, fourth time. The Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. The Lord came and stood. The word stood, yit yatsab, means to stand. It means to be present. It means to station oneself. And so by description here in the word, the Lord is stationed at Samuel's bedside. God is standing there. (laughs) Now, it doesn't say Samuel saw him, but I can imagine he trembled at the divine presence. In fact, if you skip down to verse 21 at the end of the chapter, it says the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Two ways you can look at that. One, he, it was self-revelation because of the spoken word, because of the word given to him, but it's also, he stood there, he's in person there. I do believe this is a Christophany. Jesus showed up because he's there. And he reveals himself, we're told, to Samuel at Shiloh. Throughout this, we're told it's a vision. The Lord came and stood, verse 10. Samuel says, speak, for your servant is listening. Verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Both ears will tingle. You might wanna, in parentheses, write down a different uh, translation of the word tingle. Tingle's okay, but I read that the first time and I thought, wait, that sounds like tickling ears. Sounds like something we don't don't wanna do. Just ooh, 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 that's not what it means. The word literally translates at which both ears will ring. And in fact, what it, what it describes, uh, try this on your own or, or no, maybe you shouldn't, but what it describes, you ever been boxed in the ears? You go up to someone and you pop both of their ears at the same time? Don't do it. it you will give them, if you don't give them damage, you're gonna give them some ringing in their ears. That's what's described here. At which, which both ears of the people who hear it will ring. This is, in other words, I'm about to do a stunning thing, a shocking thing. We'll read about it in chapter four. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And you know this, both of his sons are gonna die on the same day, and so will Eli. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This this is the message that God brought to a 15, 16, or 17-year-old Samuel. A message of judgment for Eli's house. So Samuel lay down until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. It keeps saying vision. You know that? Over and over it says vision. Again, maybe because there was a Christophany, that there was a a, a visual, that he saw a manifestation of the Lord, which would be Jesus. 
Jesus before Christ. Or a vision is also a hearing. It was the word that he heard, the word that he heard, and it's the word that brings faith. The word that we hear, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, verse 16, then Eli called Samuel and said, and he said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. I'm thinking by now Samuel is tired of saying, here I am. And he said to him, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything he, and hid nothing from him. And he, that is Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And I'll tell you something else about old Eli at this point. He's still wise enough to be resigned to the will of God even though he knows what this means for him and his household. He recognizes this is God's will and he is resigned to it and there is no fighting it. Verse 19, thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. Underline that in your Bibles. The Lord was with him and let none of his words fail or literally let none of his words fall to the ground. His words, Samuel's words. What this prophet will now speak is going to have weight and authority to it. It's not gonna dribble off his chin and fall onto the ground. No, his words will not fail because it's the Lord's word within him that Samuel is going to begin speaking out. But I love this, I love this. The Lord was with him. What more could anyone possibly desire? The Lord was with him. Genesis 39, verse three, tells us about Joseph. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Genesis 39, 23, also of Moses, or of Joseph, says the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. So the Lord was with Joseph in the good and the bad of his life. And if you've read the story of Joseph, you know there's plenty of bad, but the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, even in prison. 1 Samuel 18, 14 tells us of David that he was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. 2 Kings 18, verse seven tells us Hezekiah, the king, the Lord was with him and wherever he went, he prospered because the Lord was with him. Isaiah 43, verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, the Lord says. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, they will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He says to Israel, I will be with you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And whether it's for Samuel or Paul or Hezekiah or David or Joseph or you and me, the key to a faithful witness, I've said this before, is the faithful withness of God. It's his withness, his being with you that makes you a witness for the Lord. Well, verse 20, all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba, that is from Dan in the north to Tel Sheba down in the south, all Israel knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. Again, a prophet, not a priest, though he is of Levi. 
but he's going to be Israel's greatest prophet since the days of Moses and at a time when the light was almost out. God did a mighty thing here. Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, the word of God, that is the revelation of God. Gospel of John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Has God called you? Can you say like Samuel, you've had a moment of revelation, a, a, a God encounter, a power encounter of some kind with the Lord. You can call, call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can call it a, a, a revelation of God. Has he spoken to you in some way or another? And you might be listening to me ask the question right now and you might be saying, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I've been called. I'm gonna have something to tell you tonight. Just minister to the Lord. This is good stuff. Just minister to the Lord and you'll minister for the Lord soon enough. That calling will come one way or another. I am absolutely convinced of it, but it comes to those who have determined to minister to the Lord. You just serve him and let him call when he desires, desires to. Father, I thank you for your word to us tonight. I thank you for what we see in Samuel. And I pray, Father, that we will learn from what we see. We recognize, Father, there is corruption even in the church. There are the Hophnes and the, and the Phineases. There are the priests and the pastors who are sexually immoral. There are those that are heretical. And Lord, it breaks my heart even to say that, even to recognize it aloud but we're all aware of it. We're not kidding anybody. We know. We know what goes on in the church today, even as it went on in Israel before. We recognize these things, but, but Lord Jesus, we know that you are with us. And I pray that you will help us all to grow up before you, eyes on you, ministering to you. If by chance at some point you might call us to minister for you, that is wonderful. But until that time, would you just allow us the grace to continue to minister to you with our eyes on you? I pray in Jesus' name.